Welcome to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham, and your co-host, Kevin Toffel. And today, we have an amazing show for you. I am here at the Parks Connection Smart Home Summit, so we're going to be talking to you about stuff from there. We're going to be talking about new updates on Madam A and Amazon's selling facial recognition. Plus, we've got more details on Easy Mesh tied to Comcast selling their plume pods everywhere new Arduino boards for IoT projects. We've got a lighting company that focuses on selling light switches to builders, raising money. We've got some news about Google's cloud, and we completed our own IoT project that you might want to hear about. We've got a message from this week's sponsor, Comcast's Machine Q business. And Mitch Bowling, CEO of Sears Home Services, is actually our guest to talk to us about how Sears is using IoT for things like predictive maintenance, and then also what you can expect from your connected appliances. So all of this and more is coming up after a quick message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Bosch. Are you interested in all things IoT? The Bosch Connected World blog covers a wide variety of IoT topics from around the world, such as Industry 4.0, Mobility, smart home, blockchain, and ag tech. So check out the blog at blog.bosch-si.com for articles, case studies, interviews, and more. Okay, Kevin, are you ready for a fun show? I am super hyped because I am in California. It's very early in the morning, but I've only been at this show, it's only been going on for half a day, and I've already gotten lots of great information and data. And I am really angry. Angry, Kevin. Why is that? So far, the big topic is, hey, we are kind of not going as fast as we thought because people aren't buying into this. And hidden among this is, you know, people are talking about the value proposition for users' expense. And the big thing is interoperability. Everyone's like, yeah, nothing it's hard for them to figure out what works with what. And they're talking about this at the show, like it's this mystery force. Like not every single one of them has had a goal of creating their own platform and are ready to give that up to actually work towards some useful standards. That's the thing. Aren't these the people that are creating this industry? I mean, they have created this mess themselves by trying to do it all internally in their own brands. Yes, Yes, that is true. So I will not harp on this too much because we all know that it's frustrating that our devices don't work together and you buy one thing and you're like, oh, I'd like to tie it to this thing. Oh, I can't. But the first panel of the event officially was a bunch of guys who came up from Cox, from ADT. There was someone from Vivint. There was someone from August and someone from the beta store. And they basically talked about interoperability. Yeah, like it's hard. And it is hard, but it doesn't have to be hard. No. And this is something obviously we've been harping on for a long, long time. And I don't see it getting any better soon, partially because this industry has gained momentum without the interoperability. And yes, interoperability would certainly propel it further faster, but that may mean that people might have to replace devices, hubs, switches, who knows what. Yes. So here's my, the hope I have in, this is something I don't know if it's actually going to happen, but I've actually talked to two companies recently that are looking 
in trying to implement OCF's standards for IoT interoperability. So these are data schemas for different devices. So basically think of a data schema for a light bulb. You can automatically generate that from their stuff. And this is the Open Connectivity Foundation. This is used to be Intel's group, and then they subsumed all join. And maybe that's going to happen. I thought that was going to happen in 2016, but they didn't come out with a good reference spec, but now that's out. And so, I don't know, that's really kind of my only hope. And voice is not my only hope. I'm sorry, people who feel like you can do it all with voice. You cannot. No, that also well, actually well, was a topic here. Yeah. You can't do it all with voice. Yeah, voice Voice is a user interface. It's not the back end. That's the thing. And people kind of confuse the two. I mean, voice is just a way to interact with your devices, but it doesn't help necessarily the devices interact together. You need back end services to make that happen, standards, etc. So... I'm glad people are realizing that voice is not the answer. Interestingly, well, two points come to mind. One, we're actually going to talk about interoperability a little bit and the challenges of it with our voicemail, listener voicemail this week later in the show. So it just highlights the challenge right there. And also, this is almost like, and we're going to talk about EasyMesh as well, but this almost reminds me of the whole EasyMesh thing we talked about last week. So what is the incentive for these companies to work with other products it makes more sense with a device as opposed to the router guys because the router people have their own things that work. Their routers work today in a brand. They don't want or need to work with other brands, even though consumers would benefit from that. On the device side, again, so much of this is already rolled out. So this should have been done already. Sigh. I sigh. mean, really, all Heavy sigh. is a sigh. Now, I will say, and I'm going to write something up about this, they also had Mark Spates, who is in charge of Google's connected speaker business, and that means Google Home and the Google Mac speakers. He was talking about AI in connected products. And what was really kind of compelling and interesting is he talked about the levels of confidence you needed to deliver certain AI experiences. And Kevin, we talk about this with like, we want our smart home to be more intuitive. So he was saying, if you want a curated experience, you have to have like a 70% confidence interval. And that's something like, hey, this person seems to like this type of music. Let me just play more of that. It's highly likely that that's going to be inoffensive, right? Mm-hmm. If you want a corrective model, so something where like, think of a motion sensor in a room. If you're sitting too still for too long, it'll go off. It's okay when that happens. It's a little irritating. You got to wave your arms around, but it's not, the consequences are not too huge. For that, you need to be 85% confident that you're going to get it right. And then predictive, which is where we kind of want to go, is you have to have a confidence level of like five nines to be able to deliver this experience because otherwise you're going to get clippy. There are real world consequences for it, like money may change hands. Like if your smart assistant's like, hey, I think that these signals all result in Stacy going to the airport and calling a car, which is what she always does. Let me just send that to her door. Those kind of things probably need to be user-driven as opposed to AI-driven for quite some time to come. So I thought that was really interesting. It's good food for thought for you guys as you're starting to build, you know, AI products and models. And I'd be curious to hear what y'all think. And that is all I've done so far at the Parks Home Summit. I'm sure I'll talk about it next week, and I'm sure you'll see more in this week's newsletter. So now on to Madam A, which is what we call Amazon's personal assistant, just so to avoid setting off all of your devices. So she's got some new new talents. She does. And this is a talent that why the Google Assistant doesn't have is beyond me. And you'll understand in a second. So 
What happened this week is Amazon announced their Madam A smart scheduling assistant. And what you can do now is ask Madam A to schedule a meeting with one of your contacts, and she will actually check and see when you two have time available, which is awesome. So I could say, Madam A, schedule a meeting with Stacy, and Madam A would say, you and Stacy are available from 1 to 3 p.m. today and 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday. What date and time should I schedule? So she'll actually check and then ask you. You then respond the time, you give her the name of the event, and she will schedule it, and she'll send an invite, an email invite to the other party. If you already know the time, you can just schedule the meeting with that person at a set time, and she will still check to see if there's availability and will say if there's a conflict or something. So that's kind of nice. This is already out there for Amazon's Madam A for Business accounts, but it also is available for consumers as well, and it works with linked calendars from, let me make sure I have it right, Gmail, G Suite, Microsoft Office 365 and Microsoft Office Exchange 2013 or better. So again, this is one of those things that I'm like, wow, it works with my Google Calendar, but it doesn't work with my Google Home. Either way, I think it's an awesome use of voice assistance. And both parties have to have their calendars hooked up to Madam A, correct? That is correct. You actually have to add either your work or your personal contacts to the Madam A app. Okay. And some of mine are already in there, like you are, Kevin. Oh. Because we've talked on the drop phone, in. The drop in. <laughs> yeah. So this is awesome. This is like, this could cause me so much relief because half of my life is scheduling meetings, I swear. And it's such a pain. So now everybody who wants to deal with me, man, put your calendar on Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Please. You know, what's really nice because managing these events also can be a time consuming thing. You can actually say, Madam A, move my 9 a.m. meeting and change the time right off the bat. And she'll notify the people who are in the meeting? Yep. God, it's like magic. Okay. This is where we're going. It's so exciting. Okay. Less exciting is Amazon, the ACLU put out some data that Amazon is selling facial recognition technology to police departments, which is upsetting because it's a very clear signal to the world that, hey, we have all this camera data that's picking up our faces. We have the ability to recognize people and now we can sell it to law enforcement. I feel like this story, it's not overblown exactly. It's a great example of everything that Kevin and I talk about in the abstract. So I think it's important from that perspective. But it's also important to know that what Amazon is selling is their recognition, and that's recognition with a K, computer vision or facial recognition tool. So this is not taking their data. This is applying their recognition tool to the cop's camera data. I say this because a lot of us are freaking out because Amazon sells, because of the Blink acquisition, cameras. And they have the, I don't know if they still sell this, but the Amazon Echo Look, which takes images of you and your cool outfits and tells you how to be more stylish. So that data, Amazon could apply its facial recognition stuff to that. And for all I know, it does. That's a good question to ask. But they're not selling your doorbell cam data to the police, which I think is an important distinction. 
It's a huge distinction. As a consumer, I'm not overly concerned that my cameras are using facial recognition and sending out that data to third parties. This is data that the law enforcement agencies, I think in particular, at least from the ACLU standpoint, Washington County's Sheriff's Office in Oregon is using it. I mean, they had a database of mugshots and other things to cross-reference faces. So they're using facial recognition on the data that they have, not scanning webcams for people, which is very different. You're right. And now, just to put this into like, hey, the future is coming. Apply this with Ring, the Ring doorbells, the Neighbors app. So Amazon now owns Ring. They've got the Neighbors app. This is actually your Ring doorbell data going to the police if there is an open case file. So if the police file to get some data from, they have a case, they can actually get data from a neighborhood's Ring doorbells. And from there, they have facial data from your smart home stuff, which then the police, if they had recognition or any number of services that are similar from other vendors, they could actually find a perpetrator or maybe find someone who's innocent who just is in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that is something to think about. So be a little paranoid. I mean, we have to think about the ramifications of putting cameras everywhere when we also have access to really good facial recognition. And I don't think we've actually talked about that at a societal level, nor at a regulatory level. And, you know, maybe we should. I think we should. But, you know, that's okay. All right. Let's talk about Easy Mesh. The cracks are already showing. Yes. So we talked about Easy Mesh last week. And just to recap, this is the Wi-Fi Alliance standard that will allow interoperability, there's that word again, of mesh networking routers and access points from different vendors. So instead of today, you have to buy all Orbeez or all Plumes or all Google Wi-Fis, whatever it may be, in the future, you may be able to mix and match. And I had said, I don't see the incentive for these router makers to really adopt this. In fact, it's disincentive, but that was my thought. Sure enough, Fast Company reached out to several router makers, and some of these are Wi-Fi Alliance members. They say they are not rushing on interoperability. And in fact, an executive at Qualcomm, which makes the chips inside these routers and access points, expressed skepticism, I'm quoting now, that the current standard will bring down prices or allow competing systems to work together. So even the folks who helped devise the standard in the alliance are like, "Mm, no, I don't really think so. I think it just got too far too fast. Yes. I think the Wi-Fi alliance was behind the ball on this one and the industry moved ahead and now they have no reason to adopt the standard. So maybe we'll get one, but I highly doubt it. All right. Tied to this, Comcast, as part of their Xfinity Wi-Fi efforts and Xfinity Home efforts, they have started selling plume pods. These are not the actual pods manufactured by Plume. They're manufactured by Qualcomm, who took a license to do so. They're going to be a six-pack of these pods, which basically you plug in and they create a lovely mesh Wi-Fi network in your home. You plug them in where you have poor connectivity and you're like, poof, it's fixed. A six-pack will cost, I believe, $199, which is cheaper than the Plume version, which makes sense because Comcast is ginormous. And... I tried these out. I thought they were good. They did suffer in some of the speed tests that traditional magazines run. And that's because their focus is on coverage and fixing issues. So this, I think we're going to be moving from a, ooh, Wi-Fi, blast it in a small radius kind of and check the speeds world to, hey, 
can I get decent coverage everywhere in my house? It doesn't have to be the fastest because how many people are really, how many devices are really going to use a gig or even 300 megabytes per second streaming at a time? Really, probably just your 8K TV. (laughs) (laughs) And you should really hardwire that. That's just me. Okay. So that's the Comcast news. And this is all part of Comcast saying Wi-Fi is super important to our plans as a broadband provider. And without good Wi-Fi, you can't do anything. They can't sell their smart home services. They can't deliver a good internet experience. And these are really smart for them because they don't have to send a tech out. They just send out this tiny little device that you plug into an outlet and poof, your Wi-Fi magically gets better. This does assume that you're using your Comcast supplied modem and router, which means Ooh. you're paying, I think it's up to $11 a month. It is some craziness. So this is giving you value for that modem fee, possibly? <laughs> Maybe. Nope. Sorry, you can't sell me on using their router. That's okay. I'm not trying to. I'm just okay. pointing out that that's how this works. So that's all of that. Let's talk about Arduino. Yeah, a little bit of IoT Maker news now. In the Maker Fair Bay Area event, the Arduino folks announced two new IoT boards. Stacy, you're a chip girl. You're going to love the first one. It is the MKR Vidor 4000, and it is the first Arduino board based on an FPGA chip or Field Programmable Gate Array chip. You're excited, aren't you? Oh my God, that is amazing. And do we want to say why it's so amazing? This I would love to hear response. you. I would love to hear you say why. Oh my gosh, this is tying into something that I actually want to write about, which is we're entering this era of chip customization. And it could be through FPGAs. It could be through something called RISC-V, which is a new architecture. But what's happening is as we add computing to everything, we no longer have these, I'll call them monolithic platforms like the smart home or the PC or a server. I mean, we'll still have them. Sorry. But we have this additional market need for chips that are optimized to do something very specific. So maybe it is to be very good at powering a water sensor or to be powering a camera that's doing facial recognition in a retail store. So you're going to get a lot of these more customized needs that aren't going to scale out to production of, you know, 100 million chips that you would need to do a traditional chip and manufacturing process. So you're going to want it to be programmable or adaptable in a way that's economical. So that's what the FPGAs are going to be doing. That's really awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. A lot of what you described is what I would call like an ASIC or an application-specific integrated circuit. And that, just like a Bitcoin miner uses an ASIC, it's that chip does one thing and one thing only, and it mines Bitcoins. But these... I hmm? I should say, yes, these are changeable on the fly. And the reason for that I was like, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I didn't talk about AI. The reason for that is because the jobs these are going to be doing, the AI jobs they're doing are going to change over time as the models get better. Right, right. Sorry. No, that's okay. You're spot on. So I thought you would like this board. This looks a lot like a Raspberry Pi board. Like If you're familiar with the larger Arduino boards, you know, it's got Wi-Fi built in and different ports and so on. I don't have a price on that. I think it's going to be available next month. So we'll see what happens. And then if you need a really small new Arduino board, they have the Uno Wi-Fi Revision 2, which, I mean, it looks like, geez, half a board. It almost looks like a a memory module inside a computer for crying out loud. It's really small. And that has like just a minuscule amount, like 6K of RAM, 48K of flash, and then a small microchip on the board. So, you know, this is really for using cloud-based 
IoT devices that they say, you know, will work with AWS and Google Cloud, for example. So that also comes out next month. So we'll see on pricing. Okay, I'm going to let you guys know that I'm recording this from a hotel room, and it's starting to get a little noisy as people wake up. So we're going to blow through this and ignore the background noise because I can't do anything about it. But let's see. Yay, new Arduinos. A company called Deco raised money. They raised $4 million. And Deco is a really interesting company to me because they make a light switch, but they've optimized their sales channel to sell to builders. So what happens is it's for new construction. You go in and you say, hey, this is exactly how many light switches I need. And you say what rooms they're in, everything like that as the builder. You send it to Deco and they send you a package that is like a no-brainer install for these guys. They put it in the right room. It's got the right intelligence associated with it. So nothing has to be programmed by the builder or even the end user. So you basically get smart lights without any work. They do all the work on their end. So there's no configuration by the consumer, which is nice to one aspect because they don't have to mess around with it. So it's going to come with different scenes and so on pre-configured. Does that mean you can't change them in the future? You can change them in the future. Okay, that's good. The idea is to make it as easy as possible. Gotcha. So it's kind of like the noon lights, except those are a retrofit option and they don't have that builder channel established. So with the noon lights, you can buy them, you install them. They have these pre-programmed scenes. So you actually never have to do anything unless you just want to. Right. And if I recall correctly, the Deco lighting system is capable of working with Madam A and Google Home already. It does indeed support Madam A and Google Assistant. So you can add those without worry. All right. Let's go to next. Next little bit of news, Ayla, who is an IoT cloud platform. So companies like Hunter Fans, I feel like there's some appliance manufacturers in there. When they want to build a connected product, they buy a board that works with Ayla's cloud. They pop it in and all their data goes to Ayla. Ayla manages the device data. It manages everything for them. It's lovely. People like it. So they now have added, they have long supported AWS and now they are supporting Google's cloud. So yay. And this is actually worth noting because Google doesn't have a great device management platform as part of GCP. They've got lovely insights and data flows, but they don't actually deal with the kind of telemetry data as it is. So this is actually a win for both companies, but probably more so for Ayla because they said their customers were like, hey, we want to not stick our stuff on AWS. And now they don't have to. So woo. And speaking of Google Cloud, Kevin is going to tell you about our latest IoT project, which is moving our voicemail platform from the Pi to the cloud. Kevin? Yeah, so we built the IoT voicemail hotline uh, using Python and Twilio last year. And we talked about putting it on the cloud back then, but me being a very, very amateur developer, I'm like, let me just make it work first. So we put on a Raspberry Pi. And that's worked mostly pretty well. Any issues actually haven't been with the Pi or the code. It's been with my dog pulling the power cord on the Pi, local internet outages, things like that, things outside of generally my control. So I started digging around and looking at different cloud solutions, and we could have gone AWS, Google Cloud, Azure, whatever. But I already had a free account with Google Cloud Platform along with $300 in credit, and all that was good for a year. And I highly recommend if you want to play with using the cloud, this is a great way to do it. You can sign up for the free trial account and not pay anything for a year, which is awesome. My year is almost up, but we still aren't going to pay anything because our 
voicemail server just it barely uses any CPU cycles and not too much network bandwidth. It's only when you guys call in. So, I mean, call in, you know, anytime. We've certainly got the bandwidth to handle it. What I decided to do was move it to Google Cloud, and I wrote up a post on Stacy on IoT that explains it all. Basically, I didn't have to change a single line of the Python code. I just had to get it up on Google Cloud using their cloud console, which was very easy to do, and just add two other little files for configuration purposes. I also had to create a virtual machine. And you can choose, you know, a really small virtual machine, which is obviously what we did. I mean, it's literally 600 meg of memory and just like one CPU core. But I mean, if you're a Netflix or somebody, you obviously have hundreds and hundreds of cores and tons of bandwidth that you need and so on. So the cloud makes it scalable. And that applies obviously to Google Cloud, Azure, AWS, etc. We probably won't ever have to scale this, but it's good to know. In any case, once I got all the files up there... Literally, I just spun up the virtual machine and told it to deploy my app. And that was it. And all I had to do after that, because we use Twilio, and Twilio needs to know when you guys call in on the Twilio phone number, where do I find code to do something with this information? The Google Cloud console gives me a URL that I just configured Twilio with. So now Twilio points to not the Pi anymore, but to Google Cloud. And that's it. it. The whole thing was seamless. You guys didn't even notice any transition because it just happened. And so far, it's been working great. Yay! Yay! Thanks, Kevin. And he said we in there, but it's really all Kevin. This is Kevin's baby. (laughs) I like to tinker. I love it. I'm glad you like to tinker. So speaking of the IoT voicemail, if you would like to give us a call and have us answer your questions, give us a ring at 512-623-7424. This week's IoT podcast listener hotline is brought to you by Schlage, maker of electronic locks. With Schlage, you can have a brand new electronic lock installed in minutes with just a screwdriver and your own two hands. And they're easy to set up and use. To see what's possible, visit schlage.com to learn more. And this week, we have a voicemail from Dwight, who perfectly illustrates all of the pain points that we have discussed so far at this particular summit I'm at. Hey, Stacey and Kevin, this is Dwight from Atlanta. I'm actually calling with a question. I want to know if there is a way that, or if there's a device that I can use to physically cut on my light bulbs. I have a mixture of Hue lights and Lifex bulbs, and I know that Hue makes a product that can allow you to toggle the light switch off and on, but I was wondering if there was a device that works across both lights. Anyway, if you can make that suggestion or if you know of a device that might be useful I would appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, Dwight, this is a wonderful question. It should not be a question, but that's that's the state of the industry. So you should, it's hard to answer your question exactly because we don't actually know what you have. So we're going to run through a couple scenarios where you can do this. The basic architecture is you're going to have to run each of your lighting things through some kind of software and hub and then run a button through that. So there's a couple ways you can do this. First way is probably, in the best way, is probably HomeKit. And Kevin can tell you a little bit about that. Right. So if you have HomeKit, the LifeX, all the LifeX bulbs actually support HomeKit. So you're good there. And the Philips Hue, as long as you have the second generation bridge, you're good there. What you could do then maybe is look at one of the HomeKit buttons, such as the new button from Fabaro, and you'd be all set. My LifeX bulb, it's the only thing I have on HomeKit. So I can't say I've tested this, but this should work. Again, if you have HomeKit. What if he doesn't have HomeKit, Stacey? 
So if your HomeKit implementation doesn't work, what you're going to have to do is use SmartThings. If you don't have SmartThings, this is going to be kind of a pricey proposition because you're going to have to buy the hub and you're probably going to have to buy something to act as your button. And there are a wide range of possible buttons, everything from like $30 buttons made by a company called Button to like these tiny little Z-Wave buttons. So you'll hook up your LifeX bulbs through SmartThings, you'll hook up your Hue bulbs through smart things and you'll create a recipe or a scene and with the button press you'll activate it and that is how you're going to be able to do that and if you have wink you're kind of on the outs yeah if you have wink it's not going to work because wink and lifex don't work together the only thing i can think of on the wink hub side even though it's not natively supported the lifex bulbs i mean maybe using a third-party system like if this and that or you know me could work with wink it should work with wink as long as you have a button that would work with wink Yes. And there, again, a Z-Wave button, you can find those anywhere. And that yeah. So, Interoperability issues. Yeah, Dwight, we're sorry. But that's how it would work. <laughs> Thank you, Dwight, for your question. And everybody, remember, you can call 512-623-7424 to have us answer your own smart home question. And now, stay tuned for our guest, Mitch Bowling, CEO of Sears Home Services, and a message from our sponsor. Hey everyone, we are taking a break from the Internet of Things podcast for a message from our sponsor. This week's sponsor is Machine Q, a Comcast service. And I have Alex Karam here to talk about how Machine Q is evolving. So, Alex, remind us, what is Machine Q? Machine Q is Comcast B2B and B2B2C IoT business. We're focused on providing network connectivity to our solution partners, and we're also growing a robust portfolio of point-specific IoT solutions. Awesome. So last week, we talked about how customers will use Machine Q to start measuring some aspect of their operations, but then they quickly will try to add more. Can you offer an example? So what we're seeing in the marketplace is that many of our initial solution providers are able to go in there and solve a particular need that's acute. And then they come back to us and they ask, hey, by the way, there's additional services that these people are looking for. So perfect example would be looking to go to a restaurant and provide temperature humidity for their cold case. One of our solution providers has provided them a full stack solution. And after they've solved for that, they might want to do predictive maintenance on their refrigerators as well. So they come back to Machine Q and say, is there another solution provider in your ecosystem that can solve for predictive maintenance? And we're not only seeing it there in terms of sort of private enterprises, but an example would be for what we did at Comcast Cares Day. We went to a local garden in Philadelphia, and they asked us for soil and monitor sensors. We're using a partner of ours called Sensaterra. After they realized that we had network coverage in that area and they were able to monitor their, their soil monitor with that device, they asked us with anything else in terms of air quality that might be used there. And we said, of course, we happen to have Decent Labs as another one of our solution providers, and they installed the Decent Labs air monitor there. And then finally, they said, for the indoor greenhouse use cases, we're also trying to measure temperature humidity as well. Is there something that can be used there? And we said, yes, we actually have our own device called the MQ Flex that can do that for you. So what we're seeing in the market is while many users have a particular need for one IoT solution, they quickly come back once they recognize what that's done for them and they're seeking additional services that scale quickly without having to go and do an RFP or to go down a particular pilot with somebody. We talked about this, but should customers interested in working with Machine Q worry if they aren't in a Comcast service area? No, we've been able to solve for our clients' needs outside of Footprint as well. 
We have a service called Connectivity on Demand. That is a particular need or a location that's outside our traditional footprint. We're able to drop ship them gateways to provide coverage in a localized area. Okay, and where can listeners go to find out more about MachineQ? The best place to start will be at our website, machineq.com. There you can find the latest information on our network coverage, white papers, technical and business details about how to develop on the MachineQ network. Welcome back to the Internet of Things podcast. This is your host, Stacey Higginbotham. And today's guest is Mitch Bowling, who is the CEO of Sears Home Services. Hi, Mitch. How are you doing today? Great, Stacey. How about yourself? So well. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I know we talked when you were back at Comcast doing some of their Xfinity Home stuff, and I'm excited to talk to you again. Yay! Yeah, yeah. Same here. It's been a long time. So let's kick this off with just a broad overview. What do you do at Sears Home Services? Okay, so good question. Sears Home Services is appliance repair. We've had that business for decades. We also have a home improvement business, Wally Home or Wally Labs as part of Sears Home Services. And then we have a new exciting service called Service Live. So that's what we do. We serve customers around the country. No matter what brand of appliance they bought, where they bought it, we service it and keeps us busy. I imagine. So this is a business that's tailor-made for the Internet of Things. I can think of, my gosh, predictive maintenance, understanding from a connected appliance what's wrong so you have the right parts on the truck. There's probably a million other things. But can you talk about what you guys are doing here today? And maybe we'll go into what you are thinking about doing. Yeah, I mean, you hit on some of the things that are happening today. You know, our Kenmore appliances that we sell are, you know, web-connected. They're smart appliances. A lot of the appliances we work on from other brands are also smart appliances. So we're faced with those or we you know, see those every day. We're able to use those diagnostics to help solve a problem faster for a consumer. We also use technology to help our technicians when they're in the home solve problems faster. We do that by connecting that technician through an application to our effectively a tier two where they can call if they have a really tough situation in the field where they can send them live video, they can send them pictures, we can send them back schematics to a product. So we're seeing connected devices, we're working with those, we're also using technology to be faster, smarter, and and help our customers. Okay, and that's actually something I talked about with Sears at CES. You guys were actually bringing this concept of using video to help repair an appliance that your techs are using today into hopefully the consumer home. So like someone like me who feels fairly confident in mucking about with this stuff might also have the chance to fix my own stuff. Yeah, we're working on that. We have a lot of customers that do DIY, which is great. We serve those as well. And as you said, we use this technology today for our technicians. It's it's sort of our proving grounds for that technology, but we absolutely are in the process of rolling that out to customers. We've tested that. We're making some changes to it, but what we want to be able to do is give that DIY customer the ability to call us if they just need a little bit of help troubleshooting where they can, you know, using their phone, which practically everyone has a smartphone these days, and show us exactly what they are seeing and we can help them. I think that is so cool. I cannot wait for this to become... Actually, do you think this would become the standard in the service world over time? I think it's possible that it can. We're very excited about it. The customer feedback's been very positive. You know, in this day and age, as everything becomes more and more automated, smart device applicable, I think if it's, I think it's almost impossible for it not to be very commonplace in the future. 
Okay. And other areas where IoT can help in the Sears home service business? Well, you mentioned predictive maintenance. That's something that, you know, the industry, Sears included, is working on. Whether it's, you know, my group from a service perspective or our Kenmore team from a building those products and other competitors as well. But that is the future, I think, of appliances for sure and more things in the home. Many things in the home, as you know, are becoming smarter every day. We want to be able to get to a point where I'll just use an example. Your refrigerator can tell us in a proactive way whether it needs a water filter change or it's you know maybe it has a part that's going bad or it's using more energy than it should that's in, an indication that something is wrong with that appliance. And that's what you know the industry is working toward. There are real working examples of that today where that information goes to a consumer app on their smartphone. But what we're working toward is where we can look at that from a service perspective and proactively contact the customer and solve a problem before it happens. That means that their inconvenience level drops, especially if it's something like a refrigerator because, you know, you have now you have food that can spoil and that's not good for anyone. This is such a cool and compelling vision as someone who's, you know, had a dryer breakdown right as I'm transferring my wet clothes to it, for example, or yes, a lost refrigerator. How do you convince customers that you're doing this for their own good and to build trust? Because there's also this sense of like, this is about to break down. Are you sure you just don't want to sell me another part? (laughs) I think consumers today actually are past that and understand that predictive maintenance is part of life. I mean, as I mentioned before, there are other devices in our lives today that are trying to be predictive. Some cars are trying to be predictive. I mean, if you think about it, the check engine light from you know, 50 years ago is an indicator that something is wrong. We've taken the check engine light to a whole new level in this digital age. So I think consumers understand that. It actually gives them an opportunity to save money from early detection versus you know, waiting and waiting when they may not know something is wrong and that problem creates additional costs. So I think it's a positive for consumers. I think it allows them to do things on their schedule versus the schedule of their appliance if it breaks, which it needs to be repaired now. Preventive maintenance, they're going to have a window that they can do that. So I think it's going to be very positive for consumers when this becomes commonplace. Again, we and others have these devices or appliances in the marketplace now. It's making them the norm. And, you know, it'll take a while because there are a lot of legacy appliances out there and appliances last a long time. But it changes every day and the percentage of smart appliances goes up literally every day. So it's the future is exciting. You mentioned that you guys are working on this. What needs to happen for this to become, I guess, commonplace or real? Well, Smart appliances are real today. They are in consumer homes today, connected to the web or connected to the cloud, probably a better way to say it. And customers are getting information on there. Where I think there's a real opportunity is moving that to a proactive state with a service company like ours, where we can proactively contact that customer. Maybe they missed the alert on their phone. You know, maybe they didn't load the app. You know, there could be reasons they don't see that where we could help by proactively contacting them. And I think what gets us there, to some degree, it's time because we need more ubiquity. When I say we, the industry needs more ubiquity of smart appliances. And and that's happening just the way, you know, 
color TVs eventually overtook black and white TVs. It takes time for those things to be replaced, but that's part of the evolution of smart appliances. All right. And let's go to one of my, one of the topics I've been most eager to hear about, which is Wally Home. Sears bought this a while back and it kind of went under the radar. So what are you guys doing with Wally? So yeah, Wally is a very exciting product. And, and when I came on board at Sears, given my Comcast background that you know you're very familiar with, we moved that business into Sears Home Services. You know, I've spent years of my life in the IoT space, but it's a very exciting product. You know, the product itself, I believe, is the best in the industry between the water sensors and our hub and the water valve itself, which you know I have all of this in my house, and you know I feel protected from a water leak because water damage is one of the highest repair or I guess damage claims in it the industry. It is so uh, industry. expensive. Ah. Yeah, it really is. Because usually when those things happen, it's hours before you know. If you're at work, it's pumping water all day. So we protect homes from that. You know, again, I feel very protected that I have that product. So, but what we need to do is continue to expand that. So we are working with several insurance companies the same way we work, you know, I worked with insurance companies when I was at Comcast for security and home automation devices where we were able to help consumers save money there. So we're working with insurance companies there. We haven't you know, solved anything at this point, but we're in great conversation. We're also, you know, in the, in the idea of water damage. If you think about it as a individual homeowner, it's bad. But think, imagine you're in a high rise where if the apartment on the top floor has a leak, well, everybody below them probably has a leak too because the water flows downhill. We talk to a lot of property owners or property managers that, you know, that's one of their biggest concerns. So we're in several trials with multi-tenant high-rise buildings today. They're seeing the value of the product. So we're excited about a, a real future there to not only provide this on a consumer basis, but also on a B2B basis. And in addition, we have recently started using our Sears Home Service appliance technicians. They're now selling the product in a trial basis, selling the Wally product when they go into homes, especially if they go into a second home for a consumer. It's a perfect product for a second home because you're not there. That experience that you had and others had of water pumping out all day, imagine it pumping out for multiple days or a week or you know a month, who knows, especially if it's in the winter where it could freeze. So we're testing that now. We just rolled that out to another 300 of our technicians to sell. So it's something we're moving across the company and trying to help consumers in different ways. So with the Wally product, this is a Zigbee and Z-Wave-based sensor product for anyone who's in. And can you buy this like somewhere else? Yeah, it's on Amazon. You can go to wallyhome.com. It is Zigbee and Z-Wave, both. Our hub is Zigbee and Z-Wave, so are our devices. It was really made up of a hub, water sensors, and the water valve itself, and Zigbee and Z-Wave in there. So, you know, we can kind of operate both ways. It also sets us up to be interoperable with more platforms, which we're in conversations for that as well. Okay, so in addition to Wally, my goodness, you also are in charge of the service live business, which I think is really interesting because there's a huge hole in the market for installations for a lot of these connected devices. So talk to me a little bit about what this is. Yeah, yeah. Service Live is something that's very exciting for us. So Service Live is a website, servicelive.com. And you can come to the website. And today we offer plumbing services, 
electrical services, and home appliance services. The goal here is for any service that you need at your home, you can rely on Sears Home Services, whether that's Wally or our traditional home appliance or home improvement business, that we can serve any need you have at your home or your property. So with Service Live, we are building a network of suppliers for different types of service needs. And today, as I said, we have plumbers, electricians, and home appliance repair. We'll be expanding into HVAC very soon. And we're already doing some work with IoT installations, thermostats, cameras, doorbells, those types of things. And really the great thing about Service Live, it's it's an infinite world of solutions that we'll be able to provide because the needs of homeowners are essentially infinite and they change all the time. You know, my, the example I use all the time is 10 years ago, very, very few people would have ever needed an electric charging station, electric car charging station in their garage. Today, somebody buys an electric car almost every day. And you know, that's something one of our electricians could install. So it's just one example of this ever-changing world of needs at your home. And it doesn't mean that something is broken here. Service Live can provide, you know, a charging station isn't a problem, it's an opportunity. It could be something as simple as you need someone to come out and hang your lights at the holiday season and then come back out and take them down. So it's not doesn't have to be all high-tech. Service Live is a broad array of services, but we are excited about and very excited about what can happen in the IoT space? Because I think everyone would agree, IoT is exciting, but a lot of people don't understand IoT, homeowners that is. They kind of know they want it, but how do you put it together? So on both Service Live as well as our home appliance technicians, our vision for that is that we could be, think of it as a trusted advisor for the smart home, where we could go into someone's home, which we're in millions of times a year, and help guide them through, do I need three cameras? Where would I put them? Do I need a door lock? Do I need a doorbell? Do I need a Wally in my home? Of course you do. And that type of you know trusted advisor type of assistance is where I want to take us. We're not there today, but we have to have that vision to go forward and that's where we're headed. Okay. Let's talk about some of the opportunities that you're seeing. So right now, what are the most common installs that you get for smart home devices? Yeah, thermostats the most common. Yeah, thermostats are very common. And now the doorbells are becoming very common. And how much training do you need? I mean, this, as someone who has installed a lot of this stuff and tried to get it all to work together, it's impossible. So like, how do you train these people? This feels like just a huge area of, for me, it's angst. So I don't know what it is for you guys. Well, with Service Live, I mean, with Service Live, we are creating relationships. We're recruiting third-party providers. So we intentionally go out and seek providers that have these skills already. And what we are is a connection between the consumer that needs something, needs something installed, and the provider that they're a resource. So we create, you know, the connection between supply and demand. So we're not doing that training. We go find people that have that training and connect them with either our customer or Service Live also has a, a white label aspect to it where we have partnerships with companies that have these devices, more than just IoT devices, anything that can be installed, you know, several things that can be installed in a home. And we create the connection between that company and providing a resource for their customer in that case. When you go inside people's homes for these sorts of things, what are they asking for? Do they, I feel like I get bombarded by crazy use cases all the time, but it's, 
so far, the consumers are not like, oh, yeah, I totally want this. They're kind of like, huh, what? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think, you know, every day that education improves, but the smart home space is still a little bit of a mystery to a lot of homeowners. So a lot of the questions we get are, what connects with what? Because does my camera connect with my thermostat, which connects with my Wally? Let's use that. And I think that's a mystery for a lot of people. I think we'll, again, we're moving that direction. We're not there yet to be able to be that trusted provider, but that's the vision that I have. And that's a big question. You know, people that I know just in my personal life, because as you know, I've had a connected home for a long, long time now. But a lot of people that I know don't, and that's one of the reasons. they It's a little confusing. So we want to be sort of an educator in a way. I, I use a trusted advisor is what I usually call that, but where we can educate consumers of how it all fits together. Because once you understand, it's more than just having a camera. It's what the camera can do for you. It's more than having a thermostat. It's what the thermostat can do for you. The thermostat can save you money on your energy bill if you have it and you have it installed properly and set up properly. But it's, if you don't have those other two pieces, it's just a thermostat. So we want to help people get the most out of IoT devices as well as understand you know, how to put them all together. Okay. Well, I feel like I've learned quite a bit today. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mitch. So, look, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate that. We're really excited here at Sears Home Services about the future, about being more involved in IoT and helping consumers in new and different ways. So thanks again for having me on. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, if you'd like more IoT news, sign up for my newsletter at stacyoniot.com. We'll see you next week.